Yeah, I thought I would print some off. <laughs> it's not quite blockbuster entertainment, but I think there's some interesting stuff I've come across. Now, are you going to tell us which bits of this will be on the module assessment, which bits of this general information? Oh, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it huh? There's no, no exam, Mike. No. <coughs> no examination. This is just a, a slightly expanded version of what I did the other week at Reasonable Faith. So, um, we, this term at Reasonable Faith, we've been uh, particularly centering upon um, criticisms of the historical Jesus. Um, we started off in week one looking at, did Jesus even exist? Because we found out from surveys that the students did before the mission that the most asked question about Jesus amongst the university students was, did he even exist? Um, which is just absolutely shocking uh, in terms of historical knowledge um, and I think shows the influence of these um, ignorant new atheist spokespeople who are pushing this line and it's something you can find a lot on the interweb and so on but uh, yeah anyway so um, this was sort of week two and uh, uh, basically what I'm going to argue is um, don't consider the bible you know the revealed inspired word of God don't even consider it a generally reliable historical report uh, for all I care for the purposes of this talk, you could think that the, the Bible is generally unreliable. I'm going to take um, just a small sample of standard historical criteria that ancient historians would use for going through information from the past to kind of sift the few nuggets of reliable information from even generally unreliable sources, perhaps, in order to piece together a reliable picture of the past. I'm going to use just uh, four criteria, uh, and using those I'm going to show that you can piece together an outline of the Christian view of who Jesus was, just using those criteria that say, well, even if, you know, Matthew's Gospel is generally unreliable, we can, we can say this bit of information that he says is probably reliable because of we've got certain tests that we're applying to it. Uh, get my clicker in hand. So we're just reviewing some material from the New Testament that's highlighted, if you like, as reliable by some of the sort of criteria that historians use. Um, and the criteria are these. Um, you want early sources. The earlier, the better. The, the closer the, the source to the event the more reliable one would think it is, probably. You want, if possible, eyewitness sources. Eyewitness sources are better than second-hand, third-hand sources, and so on. Um, multiple sources. So if you have multiple independent sources saying the same thing, that's a particularly impressive indication of, of reliability. And um, embarrassing Sources. This is the, the idea that people don't tend to say things that put themselves in a bad light. Um, so if someone 
kind of admits to something that's embarrassing to them or that's socially awkward for a movement of people or something, um, then you think, well, the, yeah, okay, that, that's probably true because people don't, you know, tend to put themselves in a bad light if they can help it. Okay? <coughs> now, these are, the, these are positive criteria that kind of rule information in. You can't say because something doesn't pass these tests, therefore it's unreliable. They're only positive criteria. Um, now, of course, the, the more that you approach a, a set of documents and you find, you, if you keep finding that these criteria <laughs> find application, you're going to get more and more uh, uh, certain that those documents are generally reliable because they keep passing <laughs> these kind of tests with flying colours and other tests like, you know, I don't know, if it mentions a building and you're able to dig it up in archaeology and, and so on, or you're able to find a, a you know, a Roman historian saying the same thing, and, and etc. Um, so I, I note that, but we're, we're just using them to, to rule in a few nuggets, as it were, at this stage. Now, um, here is uh, a graph that's not on your handouts, actually, but this is um, a graph showing the approximate dates of the New Testament letters. So over on the left there, we've got 30 AD, and that line is the, the crucifixion at 33 AD. And then you'll find the, the um, earliest New Testament letter is probably James, at sort of uh, 48, 49-ish, all the way through down to Revelation towards the end of the first century. Okay. Now, the reason I had, we, I had us look up uh, James earlier, and this is something I've been thinking about today, um, is that in James uh, 2, verse 7, uh, James, brother of Christ, <laughs> martyred for his belief in him in, in the 60s, uh, notes... Uh, about, uh, is it not they who blaspheme that honourable name by which you are called? Um, now, by this time, it seems that the, the Gentiles Antioch had coined the name Christian. It was, you know, as you know coined by, by non-believers to describe believers in Christ. And Christian... Um, literally comes from the, the terms obviously the, the, the Greek translation for the, the Hebrew for Messiah, Christ and um, an extra bit that means belonging to or slave of so it's a kind of nickname that means oh, slave of Christ you know um, so when James here just is talking about those who blaspheme that honourable name by which, you are, by which you are called, or to whom you belong, some translations have. I think the indication is pretty likely that, that he's talking about people who blaspheme Christ, the name of Christ. But then the indication of that is, well, Christians must think, James must think that Christ is someone that you can blaspheme, which must mean that he thinks he's divine. Yeah. So here, in the, the earliest bit of New Testament literature that we have, 
is, I think, a pretty strong indication that Christians were people who thought Jesus was divine. So this, uh, you know, in old-fashioned German theology from the 19th century and so on, you might have got the idea that some people still hold on to of, of sort of the, the man Jesus who, over a long period of legendary development and people telling the stories and thinking about it, over the centuries gradually became divinized. The kind of Dan Brown, Christians thought Jesus was a man and then they all voted at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and decided let's make him God as well. Kind of thing is um, rather suspect. I thought that was uh, an interesting thing that I've been um, ruminating upon today. Uh, Galatians, the early, probably the earliest letter of, of Paul. This is sort of sixteen years post crucifixion. James, fifteen years, sixteen years. Galatian uh, talks about being crucified with Christ. So again, you've got Christ, the idea of, of, of the Messiah. And being crucified, that with Christ, so the, the Messiah Christ was crucified. Very early information that Jesus was crucified. And uh, also Paul talks about Jesus Christ and God the Father in the same breath. Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So we have Jesus Christ, God the Father, crucified, raised from the dead. 16 years, been talked about 16 years after the crucifixion. Mm. I think that's interesting. Indeed, the, the, just, the, just looking at the New Testament letters, you get multiple early and embarrassing testimony about Christian beliefs. Um, ben Witherington notes about this idea that, that you can see that Jesus was prayed to and worshipped from the very beginning of early Christianity. And that is, of course, something that Jews of whom all the earliest Christ followers were Jews, uh, really would only do if they, if they sincerely believed, for some powerful reason, presumably, that Jesus was part of the divine identity. He says the, the earliest Christology was a very high, so-called high Christology, not this idea of a sort of developmental Christology. And the so-called undisputed letters of Paul, um, written all written before the end of the 50s AD, um, Norman Geisler notes that they confirm at least 31 facts that are recorded in the Gospels. You also find testified to in the letters of Paul there. And they demonstrate a concept of a, a divine Jesus within 16 to 20 years of the crucifixion. Um, Morland notes this thing we'll look at briefly about the, the number of, of creeds and hymns or sort of poems that Paul quotes in some of his letters. Um, in Romans and Corinthians and, and Philippians, uh, Philippians 2, 6 to 11 and so on. Um, you can often tell that they will sort of translate back easily into Aramaic, which is a sign that they go back to the, 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 the very early Palestinian Jewish community formulating these ideas rather than the, the sort of going out into the Greco-Roman world. Um, they show features of Hebrew poetry and thought forms as well. Um, they came into existence as one and while the church was heavily Jewish. And they had become, clearly become, they'd become standard, recognised things that Paul could quote well before he incorporated them into his letters when he quotes them, which pushes their, their date back early, early. 
And those creeds and hymns testify to the death, resurrection and deity of Christ um, during the first decade of Christianity. So if you just take one example, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, written very likely in about uh, 54 AD. And there uh, he quotes uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, saying, um, you know, uh, reminding them that when he was with them before, which was in AD 50, I passed on to you what I received, using technical terms for, for handing on oral tradition within sort of Jewish rabbinic oral tradition. Um, so he must have got that before AD 50, and indeed here's a series of quotes from uh, various New Testament scholars, including very radical atheist New Testament scholars, saying things like, you know, uh, Gerd Ludemann is an atheist, says that the elements of this tradition are to be not later than three years after the death of Jesus in this 1 Corinthians 15 creed. Um, the Jewish uh, scholar, Pinchus Lapid, back <laughs> <laughs> <Knock> out, <laughs> uh, says that because you can trace this back again to the, to the early Jewish tradition, it might be considered as a statement of eyewitnesses, even as it were, it was formulated by the, the first community, Jewish. Uh, scholars generally reckon Paul probably received the material when he, he, he talks about visiting Peter and meeting James in Jerusalem um, after a number of years after his conversion. And he might even have received it from the Christian community in Damascus when he got to Damascus and was presumably baptised and would have been catechised into the Christian community there. Um, and of course, talking of Paul and his letters, an early eyewitness testimony, Paul himself claims we have first-person you know, eyewitness testimony from Paul talking about Jesus, saying he also appeared to me. Um, he claims himself to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. And we also have that claim independently made by Luke in, in Acts, where the road to Damascus ex experience is described in several different places in Acts as Paul goes before various sort of kings and governors and so on. So we have this from both Paul and Luke. Um, and although, of course, one might claim that Paul was mistaken, it seems very unlikely that he was insincere in claiming this since he was willing to be martyred for it. Uh, and the, the uh, uh, then-atheist account and he flew um, said that this evidence of Paul is certainly important and strong the evidence that he'd been previously, he hadn't been previously a believer is about as clear as it could have been because he was an active opponent. I think this has to be accepted as one of the most powerful bits of evidence that there is, talking about evidence for the, for the resurrection. Uh, Flew didn't believe in the resurrection, but he did, he did think that there was some powerful evidence for it, and he said it, was, it, it made Christianity the, the, the revelation claim to beat, <laughs> he once said. Um... And the whole thing of eyewitnesses as well, you probably know that the, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it's thought that at least two of those Gospels come from eyewitnesses, namely Matthew and John. Um, and that is still 
maintained by plenty of, of scholars today. In, indeed, Mark Roberts recently said, in recent years, many have come to believe that, that the first and the fourth Gospels reflect the memory and the perspective of Jesus' own disciples. And he, and he words this very carefully, and he says, Matthew and John may not have been the ones who finally put pen to papyrus, but it's then their memory, their authority, that stands behind the Gospels that bear their name. And if, if you look in, in John, for instance, there are interesting signs at the end of John of a sort of editorial process, where in John it talks about, you know, the, the, the beloved disciple who lent up against Jesus at the banquet and so on, this is the one who testifies to these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Um, is that John talking in a sort of royal we, or is it sort of his disciples finishing off finally redacting because it's called the gospel that he'd made. A lot of people argue that there are signs that there's information in John that predates the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, there's very detailed architectural knowledge about things like the Pool of Bethesda. Um, whereas most scholars will say the final form of John's gospel and that the early church fathers agreed that it was the last gospel to be written was kind of maybe in the sort of 80s or 90s of the first century. Um, but then there's this detailed local knowledge of a now, dis, you know, destroyed Jerusalem. There's passages he talks, uh, talks about, you know, now, now there is in Jerusalem a gate called the Sheep Gate, I think it's talking about, so, which is a kind of anachronistic way of putting it as if there's sort of been a two-level process. So there's, a, there's a sort of fascinating detective work that New Testament scholars get into, trying to work out the various sort of layers of, of compositional process. Um, and, of course, Mark's Gospel is, is heavily associated with Peter's teaching, and uh, Mark using uh, Peter's uh, stories and recollections. And so I think when we... You know, we, we refer to the gospel sometimes as like, you know, John's gospel or Matthew's gospel. And maybe it was John or Matthew who wrote most of it or all of it. But also the sort of way sometimes, uh, the old fashioned way of saying, you know, the gospel according to St. John kind of just covers all the bases <laughs> in terms of uh, precise accuracy, as it were, uh, of what we can know. Uh, and if you've come across Richard Bockham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, it was quite a th thick tome, but a recent sort of New Testament scholarship blockbuster. Uh, again, arguing very much, as people do today, about the, the whole sort of oral testimony thing. And Bockham argues that there are, there are signs within, for example, Mark's Gospel, that when you get a story like um, the healing of blind Bartimaeus, and it's actually Mark's gospel that names Bartimaeus in Jesus' heals of blindness outside of Jericho. That when you have a named character in a story, uh, and particularly when you have someone who's named at the beginning and end of a section of, of narrative, that's a, like a sort of first century way of doing quotation marks, saying, this is the source of this story um, the way he I think, points out that Mark's gospel um, Peter is named at the beginning and end um, and, and so on so he's arguing that, that, that those are sort of indications that 
first century audiences would have been aware of because they didn't they didn't have quotation marks <laughs> um, but these were indications that yeah okay that's the source of the story because he's mentioned this this guy and it's interesting that Mark only men- you know, mentions that that name uh, it doesn't name the other guy we know there were two guys there some gospels mention two some mention just the one but uh, The New Testament Gospels is ancient history. This is a bit of a complicated graph, but I got a, a more pretty picture graph that follows it up, that, it, that clashes it out a bit, a bit more visually. Um, but the standard, you know, question in terms of uh, what? Okay, what's the gap between the events that are being, so say, being reported when it's then being written about, which of course can be over a period of time as well. And then you can just sort of, you can cash that down into, well, what's the average lapse, the average gap between an event happening and it, so say, being talked about in an ancient report? Um, so, compile a long list of not only the Gospels, but uh, other standard works of ancient history like uh, Pliny's Letters or... Um, Tacitus's annals, or Suetonius's lives, or Josephus's antiquities, or whatever. Put it into a graph. Uh, you'll notice that Plutarch seems to be a bit of an outlier because the average gap between things happening and him talking about it is over three hundred years. <laughs> uh, and yet, we'll still, you know, use Plutarch in ancient history, but uh, carefully, of course, and using criteria and so on. But Okay, look, Pliny is right on top of the events that he's talking about, the Thucydides, but then Mark. And Xenophon and Polybius, and then Luke and Matthew and John, and then the others in the list. So they're well within about there in the range of that kind of average gap. And so if you wanted to say... Like Richard Dawkins sometimes says, you know, complains, uh, oh, these Gospels, they're, they're written, you know, so many decades after the events, you can't rely on them. Okay, well, if you're going to be even-handed in that sort of critique, you'd also have to say, okay, so we can't, you know, trust anything that Xenophon says. Xenophon, you know, he's a bit later than Mark. And we certainly wouldn't, uh, you know, trust, trust uh, anything that Josephus says in his antiquities, since there's an average... 150-year gap <laughs> between the event and the report. So, even if you use liberal datings of the Gospels, I have used my datings of the Gospels here, which are a little earlier than some people would put, but this bar represents the, the sort of range of the standard liberal scholarship datings of the New Testament Gospels. So you can see that even on the liberal datings, we're still well off, as it were. This is a bit of a busy picture here, but this is just diagramming the. Again, I was talking about the sort of stages of development of the Gospels. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Acronyms. <laughs> so, if you if you compare, um, so you know you have the, the synoptic Gospels of Mark, Matthew and Luke and that's because they have a lot of material in common and if you compare them side by side you find that Matthew and Luke 
both have in common large chunks of Mark's gospel. But they also have, then Matthew's gospel also has material that's not in Mark, but that's also not in Luke. And Luke has some material that's not in Mark, but it's not in Matthew either. Uh, and scholars, the general sort of opinion is that we can trace back various sort of earliest sources. They might not have been written sources. These might be oral sources. They might be written sources. Um, so not only do Matthew and Luke catch a lot of Mark... Mark's generally thought that the passion story in Mark, which suddenly, after all these sort of short, choppy stories in Mark, you then get a long passion narrative that's all one chunk. Um, and there's, there's one scholar I know who reckons that that goes back to a, a, a source in the later 30s AD that, that has then been incorporated into... Mark's Gospel by Mark combining the passion source that he has with Peter's teaching illustrations and puts those together to make a Gospel. Matthew's Gospel uh, and Luke's Gospel both share material called Q, which is from the German word quell, meaning source. So they share a source of material that's in both Matthew and Luke, but not that clearly doesn't come from Mark. And then material that's unique to Matthew is called M, and material unique to L, Luke is called L. And John, some people think that there's a sign source, a source of stories about Jesus's miracles that predates John, that's incorporated into John. So the general academic opinion is that there are these at least five independent sources of information, maybe more, but at least five, that stand behind and sort of get incorporated into the Gospels. So when you're asking, okay, how early did the Gospels take us in terms of this reported information about Jesus to the events? It's not, the opinion, scholarly opinion, is not like someone just sat down and decided to write it all down there and then in whenever but they were talking to and perhaps even reading sources that predated them that they drew upon so those sources Q, M, L, etc when you're reading bits in the gospel of Luke that comes from Q that source is taking you back even historically earlier than the date of the, the publication of Luke's Gospel, as it were. Not that right. It's a matter of of, of guesswork, um, but you could put a sort of again a bar on the chart here. Uh, saying if you were looking at the sources that must come, you know, between Jesus and the writing of the Gospels, you're looking at the sources from the range of years of about 30 to 60 AD, maybe. Which, again, then comparing to rest of ancient literature, uh, puts us kind of right smack bang on top of the events, practically, as it were.
Of course, multiple sources, just the common sense idea, the, the more independent sources of information, the more witnesses you've got in the, in the courtroom saying the same thing, the better. Um, so, here's a drink. This is the, um, from the Jura Europos House Church. It's a fascinating thing. You look it up on Wikipedia. Um, there's this um, house church baptistry, uh, I think it's modern-day Syria, uh, it has various frescoes on the wall, and they're from like 230 AD. They're some of the earliest pictures of Jesus. Uh, there are depictions of Jesus as the Good Shepherd and so on. Here's a depiction of Jesus healing the paralytic on the bed, pick up your bed and walk. You know, taken rather literalistically uh, here. No, not pick up your mat and pick up this sort of lion poster bed practically. Um, but again, the, the miracles of Jesus are reported by multiple independent early sources. Um, and in, again, you can trace those miracle reports back to the different sources behind the gospel, multiple early, early independent sources. Uh, and I have a chart that's on your sheet there. Um, here are <laughs> miracles of Jesus that appear in more than one gospel. Uh, and you'll see I've broken them down into, uh, at the top here, a miracle that appears in all four Gospels. And then in three, including John. Uh, now that's important particularly because uh, of the difference between John being very independent in literary terms from Matthew, Mark and Luke. He's not copying anything from Matthew, Mark and Luke, certainly. So that's definitely sort of independent information. Simply read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John alongside each other, and you'll you'll see you know uh, lots of Mark is in Matthew and Luke, but none of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are in John. Uh, so it's just a matter of, of <laughs> comparing them laboriously. Um, now the miracles are broken into four different types of miraculous things. So nature miracles like walking on water or multiplying food, um, healings. Um, exorcisms and then bringing people back from the dead revivification now no he's not for example John doesn't talk about any exorcism doesn't mention exorcism at all but um, he does mention the feeding of the 5,000 walking on the water the healing of Peter's mother-in-law the healing of the Roman centurion's servant. It's just the ones that appear in... Yeah, in, in, more, in more than one. So there are more, there are more miracles than this. And of course there are, there are occasions where it says things like, you know, and everybody in the village came to, you needed healing came to Jesus and he healed them all. So there's you know, lots of miracles. But these are uh, specific miracles that are mentioned in more than one gospel. And breaking them even into the categories, not only are all four category of miracle attested by multiple early independent sources, there are specific miracles that are attested by multiple early and independent sources of information. Like uh, something from John uh, and from Q. So you've got independent sources. And anyway, there is a bit of a blur between talking about multiple sources and multiple independent sources and uh, okay it's better to have it is stronger to have 
multiple independent sources. But just because um, Luke copy-pastes practically what Mark says, doesn't mean that Luke didn't check. (laughs) But he doesn't think, yeah, that is reliable, because I've also heard so-and-so talk about it, or or so on. So, um, you know, multiple sources, particularly when you have a, a, a lot of that happening... Yeah. Uh, and you know Luke's a reliable and he, and he s- yeah. sets out at the beginning I've set out and I've checked with those who came before and, yeah, yeah. and so on I've so checked yeah. Yeah. yeah so you know so multiple is still is still yeah. m- might well be good but clearly multiple independent is the kind of gold standard yeah, yeah. do you know how many miracles are in each of the arms no sorry I don't know the reverse info no. I'm wondering whether that calls, does, does the opposite argument apply to those? Because they're not. No. They're no. Not so, no, I, I, because I, I, talking about this whole approach of sort of so called criteria of authenticity at the beginning, I, I made the point that they're, they're only positive criteria. Yeah. You can use them to say, even if this source is generally unreliable this bit of information is probably reliable because it's also mentioned by them or because it's embarrassing or whatever but you can't say because somebody said something and it wasn't embarrassing to them therefore it's unreliable or because you know only Pliny mentions something therefore we shouldn't rely on that and not think that that happened in, in the past it's just that if Pliny and Tacitus both say it, then we're even more confident. It's all about but it's yeah, that's right. It's you know, history is is a, a sort of artistic, uh, uh, stroke scientific kind of endeavour. It's uh, both of those uh, use judgments of probability and so on, doesn't it? Peter, didn't you say there were eighty miracles? So if that's the case, then right. So I've got... I've got... I've got 80... No, I don't know how... I didn't say... It's 18 specific miracles. um, Yeah, 18, not 18. So it's 18 specific miracles that you've got multiple attestation for uh, that are are mentioned in more than one gospel, as it were. If I'm going to argue with you... Yeah. for somebody not sure, mm. isn't there more riding on the Gospels than there is on Pliny's record of what's happened in history? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's perhaps why it's good that I'm showing you multiple sources that say the same thing rather than just the one. Um, and if I can also show you that, that those sources are early and that they include eyewitness testimony rather than just second-hand. And I can show that um, there are um, instances where that testimony that says this is also embarrassing to the people who say it, and so on and so on and so on and so on. I'm gradually building up a kind of cumulative case uh, for these things. So um, when it comes to the miracle of the resurrection... Again, you can build out the, the general outline of the story from multiple 
independent and early testimonies contained within the 1 Corinthians 15 creed that we talked about uh, Mark's probably pre-Mark and Passion Source and some of the speeches in uh, Acts but of course editorialised by Luke no doubt but that even people like I mean, I've got a lovely quote here from Bart, you know, Bart Ehrman who's well known as a sceptical agnostic New Testament scholar and he says that the speeches in Acts are particularly notable because they are in many instances based on oral traditions. These speeches incorporate materials from the traditions about Jesus that existed long before Luke put pen to papyrus. So when Luke is reporting, here is Peter's Pentecost sermon from AD 33, or here is Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch, even a sceptical guy like Bart Ehrman will say this is putting us in touch with information that long predates Luke publishing the book of Acts and so you have here you know, multiple early independent sources Christ died, Jesus breathed his last, you put him to death they asked Pilate to have him executed he was buried blah 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 and placed him in a tomb Peter saying David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day what does that imply I, that Jesus' tomb is not full it's not, you know, it's empty um, they took him down from the, from the tree and laid him in a tomb, he was raised he has risen, God raised this Jesus to life but God raised him from the dead he appeared uh, Mark, just before the, the later uh, added ending of Mark, this is pre the the, the bit that's not in the early manuscripts he is going ahead of you into Galilee there you will see him indicating a group appearance uh, we, are, we are all witnesses of the fact says Peter eyewitness uh, for many days he was seen says Paul etc of course he claims to be an eyewitness himself um, you've got multiple sources for, for the resurrection appearances uh, as well including individual and group appearances. Indeed, we've got um, multiple independent sources for at least two individual and three group appearances post-discovering the empty tomb. Um, and, uh, again, you get some of the detail, like it's not just you know, people vaguely thinking, oh, catching a glimpse of Jesus out of the corner of their eye in the distance, kind of thing. I, I think that was Jesus. Kind of These include things like you know, people having long extended conversations with him, eating a meal with him, um, <laughs> walking along a road with him, etc. Walking and talking and seeing and touching and uh, I've put down types of interaction, saw and talked, perhaps touched, saw and talked, saw, saw, talked, saw, talked and touched, etc. Uh, I mentioned a little bit about the criteria of embarrassment. We can say we can we can show the same kind of outline of facts with this last of our criteria. Um, now here's another interesting bit, uh, picture. This is um, the famous Alex Aminos worships his god graffiti from Rome, um, which I've seen dated to about 200 AD. Um, but this. 
crucified figure with an ass's, ass's head. What an ass he has made of himself by getting himself crucified. What an ignominious way to go. But he's even more making the ass of himself. Yes, it's Alaximenos here, with his hand raised up, looking up at this figure on the cross. And the, the legend, um, Alaximenos worships his god, or sometimes they say, Alaximenos, worship your god! <laughs> you know. uh, what an idiot to worship a crucified guy. You know, Worshipping and saying, I'm a follower of a guy who was crucified, is hugely socially embarrassing. Uh, and I think that's well illustrated uh, by that picture. So, uh, again, Bar Ehrman, um, sceptical New Testament scholar, it's highly improbable that the earliest Palestinian Jewish followers of Jesus would have made up the claim that the Messiah was crucified. <laughs> um, um, but then uh, Rob Bowman, making the same point but extending it, uh, saying it would never have occurred to anyone in the first century to invent a story about a crucified man as the divine saviour and king of the world. Um, Something in extreme and dramatic must have happened to lead people to accept such an idea. You you have to be able to sincerely, sincerely think, okay, yes, he was crucified, but... And you've got to have a, a, a sufficient way of then cashing out that but to overcome the social embarrassment of saying, I follow a crucified guy. <laughs> um, uh, certainly, thinking he rose from the dead would fit the bill. And then, too, this is a, another picture from the Dura Europos house church. You have a picture of a couple of women going to visit a, a tomb. Uh, Giza Vermez, who was a Jewish New Testament scholar, says again, the, the evidence furnished by female witnesses had no standing in male-dominated Jewish society. Uh, if the empty tomb story had been manufactured by the primitive church to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, one would have expected a uniform and foolproof account attributed to patently reliable witnesses, i.e. men. Uh, And and you notice this, actually, if you you compare the Gospels with the 1 Corinthians 15 Creed. The 1 Corinthians 15 Creed doesn't mention women. It says... And he appeared, you know, and he was and he was raised according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, uh, and so on. But the Gospels admit the socially awkward and embarrassing fact that actually it was women who first discovered and reported that the tomb was empty, and indeed that it was women who first met the resurrected Jesus. You know, they don't let that on to that fact in the official creed for catechism, <laughs> or whatever, but the gospel writers have to admit this socially awkward fact because they're committed to reporting what happened. That's the most sort of straightforward way of interpreting it. And indeed, this embarrassing fact is admitted by t- uh, multiple independent sources. And John says it, 
for nothings. So just with the criteria of, also, of embarrassment, uh, it is clear that Christians believed in a guy who was crucified, who was buried in a tomb, that was found empty, who they sincerely believed appeared to women afterwards. Uh, so, in sum, the general outline of, of, of the Christian portrait of, of a Jesus who, who was thought to be divine, a Jesus who claimed divinity, uh, who worked various kinds of miracles, um, or at least had a reputation as a miracle worker, you could say even more securely, who died on a cross, was, was buried in a tomb that was later found empty, and was sincerely thought by various individuals and groups of individuals to have appeared to them afterwards, convincing them that he was indeed the Messiah and divine and so on, despite having been crucified, is confirmed to us by multiple and independent and very early by historical standards and embarrassing and eyewitness sources such as various early creeds, Paul, Matthew, John, James, and so on. Are there many historical sources from outside the church? Yes. Yeah, I could have done I could have done a whole that would be a topic it's so big a topic that it's a topic for a whole other session as it were. Yeah, I guess um, yeah. so um, there are, for example, I think about 11 or 12 non-Christian sources from the 1st and 2nd centuries that mention the crucifixion of Jesus. That's the most mentioned point. In, in a way, I guess that, that could be almost more credible to someone who mm. doesn't want to sort of think that the Bible is anything. Yeah. Although those yeah. sources themselves are probably more suspect to tampering, mm. like you look at Thomas Josephus one, than the Gospels, actually. Yeah. Yeah, if you're looking at sort of the manuscript tradition behind our reconstruction of what Josephus says or whatever, it's much worse than our manuscript tradition backing up how we reconstruct what Paul says or <laughs> Matthew. Or if people are sceptical and cynical, yeah. well, of course you'll say that because that's the point. Yes, yeah, which is a little bit like saying, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm investigating the Holocaust, but of course I, I don't want to get any biased sources, so I'm not going to read Primo Levi, his, his account of the concentration camps, or Eddie Vassal, or, <laughs> you know, because they're biased, because they, you know, they believed it happened, or, <laughs> yeah, they were there, they believed it, you know, so, gracious me, yeah. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. You can, by looking at, at Jewish and Greco-Roman sources about Christian beliefs and about Jesus and the martyrdom of James and Josephus and, and so on, piece together, again, an outline of the Christian picture of Jesus. Um, his miracle working is discussed by various non-Christian sources um, in the first and second, from at least into the second century. Um Josephus talks about him as a, as a doer of wonderful or startling deeds, which is a term he uses elsewhere for, for miracles in the Old Testament, um, etc. Yeah. Did you get questions about the 
editing and modification of the Gospels post no, when we deal with that, we have dealt with that at, at some stages within reasonable faith. But again, it's, it's sort of such a, a big topic that it's sort of a separate issue. I, I only sort of skirted it when I said, when I noted, look, I'm not drawing upon, I sort of bracketed out the, the ending of Mark because that's not in the earliest manuscripts. Um, so for those who sort of know that and would would have would have jumped on that, I've highlighted. Look, I've bracketed that. Yes. I'm not really drawing on this. But, yeah. There will, I'm, I'm sure there will be that is something covered on the on the podcast on the Highfield site from the, the Reasonable Faith course at some stage. What's your personal take on the say John's gospel in particular is interesting at all? Yeah. Evidences that it's been um, subsequently handled a little bit. Yeah, I I I I buy that. I think. Uh, and again, it's all a, a sort of balance of probability kind of thing. But I think there are some some bits of data that would fit with thinking there was kind of a first stab at it that was then completed towards the end of John's life with or, or by even after his death, his yeah. disciples. Um, It kind of sounded very interesting on one level when people totally gloss it over, because it's clearly important to be honest about these things. Mm. But on another level when people pretty much reject it and, like, will the sermon that includes, you know, the woman who's been um, stoned for adultery. And you're like, this is on balance. It's been accepted by the early church. It's in keeping with everything we know about the character of Christ. Yeah. It just probably wasn't the first draft of John's Gospel. It would be... Yeah. You know, the gospel stands without it, but it seems a shame to lose. Yes, that one, I mean, the story appears in different positions in the text, in different manuscripts, and it's not in, I think, the, the, the earliest ones that we have don't have it, and yeah. it's not in all of them, but it's a relatively early thing that seems to be sort of finding its place and it may come from an early tradition and, and so on it, yeah. and it's not too disreputable to talk about it, it um, these things again come in, come in degrees um, I do wish that our, our Bibles were a little bit more forthright in putting some sort of boxes around <laughs> like the ending of Mark yeah. <laughs> in particular yeah, and, and, and saying well, it will be footnoted there in the little, little the, the small yeah, print as it were but do not, do not have this but yeah <laughs> but we're still including it yeah. <laughs> um, well they could sort of just you know stuff it in the appendices at the end or you know like, but any biblical publishing house that did that, people wouldn't, you know, think that people wouldn't buy that Bible. It's like... <laughs>